Hello and welcome back to the Asset Allocator podcast, where we try to look under the bonnet of the market with leading asset allocators. I'm David Thorpe, contributing editor and asset allocator, and joining me today are Olivia Heldenhaus, investment director at Schroeder's, and David Baxter, funds editor at Investors Chronicle. But before we get into the fun stuff, just a little bit of a housekeeping point. Um, later this month, we are trying something a little bit um, different with a allocator podcast but it will be live streamed on linkedin yes i am as scared as that sounds i should be uh where we will be reviewing our uh database and the, the changes made by allocators over the past quarter or so have a look at the bottom of some of our forthcoming asset allocator emails for further details anyway on to the substance of the podcast olivia i suppose with the quarter having just ended there have been um well there's been lot there's probably a month in that where value did well a month where growth did well and a month maybe where def- defensive started to do well more more recently but what i'm keen to hear about is what are the factors that would make you consider exiting a a particular fund you don't have to obviously discuss any individual fund that you might have exited but what are the considerations given all of the flux and volatility in markets and the sharp rotations between styles Mm. It's a really good question because I think selling out of a fund when you're building a portfolio is something that you really have to think about and you have to not be distracted by the behavioral biases that kind of come into play, especially when we're seeing so much volatility in markets and there's there's so much movement across the across the market. You can't you can't try and time anything in that space, right? So Selling out of a fund is something that you, you've really got to have a specific policy in place. I mean, for us at, at Trade Investment Solutions, we have a, a sell discipline policy that we follow, which helps us to take out those behavioral biases, that helps us to identify triggers that might say we need to review a specific manager um, and decide whether or not they're going to stay within the portfolios. Um, the way we look at it is we think about it with red and amber flags and red flags are something like regulatory concerns. You know, if that were to be raised for a fund, it makes it very clear we need to review, we need to understand what that's, that regula- regulatory concern is and make a call off of the back of it. Something else that would, would trigger as a red flag is if a, a key person were to leave. Uh, that's something that you then obviously have to really consider. Will the, will the fund still be run in the same way? And if it's not going to be run in the same way, is it in a way that you you think is going to be beneficial for portfolios? David, um, as I say, the quarter's just gone. We've seen a lot of rotation mm. between between styles. What have you uh, What have you made of that? And have have you had uh, insight from investors, Chronicle readers, around how they view it and and what their sell discipline is? Yeah, it's interesting. I think the manager changes in particular are always an interesting factor because i suppose in theory asset managers have become so much better at managing that kind of managing that manager risk um but um then i don't i think if some kind of interesting changes uh for example one of the technology trusts changed their lead manager i think last year and even speaking to kind of the um incumbent and then the kind of i suppose the incoming new manager even though he's worked on the team for a long time they had i remember they had very different views and things like Spacs. So there is like actually quite a lot of, um, I suppose, disparity um, with approaches. But um, I don't know. Kind of maybe it feels like there's fewer kind of star managers and less of that risk than there used to be even five years ago. Certainly, um, fund houses tend to talk a lot more about a team-based mm. approach than they 
than they used to, right? Yeah. Okay. I think what's important is just what is the mandate that a fund has mm-hmm. and is it still going to be able to deliver on that mandate? Because when you're building portfolios for clients, you want it, I would say you want it to do what it says on the tin. You know, if we expect you to be a value fund, then please be a value fund. Mm. Um, and when you start style drifting, that's, for us, that's one of the amber flags that we look at. And so it's, it, it's more about what is the mandate that we've set for you and are you still going to stick to that mandate and do what you said you were going to do? Is, is the style drift risk now more lean? Because I, I suppose for much last decade, it's been kind of value managers kind of coming under too much pressure and drifting into sort of growth and quality. Mm. But is it now more, it, is, that a, is that something you've seen of kind of things going the other way of kind of maybe a, a growthy manager tipping over into like cyclicals and that kind of thing to try and... Mm. We definitely saw that rotation of value managers who got a little too growthy, if we can say yeah, that. Yeah. Um, I don't think we've seen it as much the other way at the moment. And I think it's, again, because it's too short term. Mm. You know, we haven't really seen this persistent, you have value one month, growth the next month. I mean, if you start if you start shifting around a portfolio on such quick turnarounds, uh, you potentially miss out on any returns that you could have generated. So I think that. There's potential, obviously, for us to see that kind of drift happen again. I think at the moment it's a little too soon to tell, actually, mm. whether we've whether we're going to see that play out. I mean, I've even heard managers say that they don't think the factors should matter in the first place, you know, and that actually it's just about buying good businesses um, that have long-term return reti- uh, return potential, and you know, sticking with your guns. Mm. So people also have different views on on what those companies actually look like. So I, I'm not sure that you'll see those factors disappear entirely, but they might just be a bit more of a kind of muddy middle. Yeah. Thank you. And, and on that point, as I say, I've done one bit of research, so I'm going to keep labelling it. We had a month where each of the factors did well in the first quarter. Um, but how, how does one think about diversification in the, in the market conditions that we've, that we've got, got now? What, what risks is one diversifying against, for example? So I think the important thing at the moment for us in portfolios is building portfolios that are defensive in nature so that we can protect from this most, what's it, the most predicted recession ever, and we we still haven't got there. Um, So I think for us, it's about being defensive for a recessionary type environment. But the, the important thing with diversification is it's about a balance, right? It's about having a little bit of this and a little bit of that, really. Because if you're too defensively positioned, then you could miss out on any additional alpha that you can generate uh, within portfolios. So I think when it comes to, you know, taking your bets, you've got to really consider them within a risk framework and understand how much return can you generate for a given level of risk? And is that something you're prepared to take on board? So a good example for recessions is typically you see small cap funds kind of bounce out of a recession. And so we hold some small cap funds within our portfolios, but again, it's a measured risk. So you wouldn't put 100% of your equity holdings into a small cap because that may or may not pay off and it could end very badly, but you do want to have some exposure to it. And so thinking about diversification for me is really about to, you know, the, the old age saying is not having all of your eggs in one basket, you know, putting it around the different asset classes. And certainly within asset classes, there's a lot of room for diversification. And that's where, you know, something like small caps come into play, uh, something like factor tilts come into play. And so that's where we're seeing the portfolios positioned from a from a diversification perspective. Thank you. Um, 
David, I guess diversification is, is something that everybody's looking for all the time. <laughs> but um, we've had that. Uh, maybe it's slightly easier now with bond yields being higher. One can uh, one can maybe expect bonds and equities to perform inversely to each other again, which didn't happen for for the past decade. But how are your readers digesting that? Yeah, I think. I mean, of course, I think people are showing more interest in bonds and perhaps the. Perhaps you can argue the 60-40 portfolio actually looks um, worthy again for, for the first time in a long time. Um, I think what's interesting, I suppose, is, and we've discussed this before, is just the um, perhaps the areas where correlations have appeared that people weren't prepared for. So particularly last year when you had bonds selling off on the back of this sort of mini, mini budget, mm-hmm. um, you saw lots of correlations that you wouldn't want to have with bonds um, in you know, there's kind of popular alternative spaces like like renewables. So I suppose it just kind of things like that maybe would push people to question again how, how diversified they are. But of course, as we've discussed, it's so, even if bonds look better, it's so hard to find an actual uh, reliable diversifier for sort of every every condition. Thank you, David. And it's almost like you've seen the questions in advance because you mentioned the 60-40 portfolio and that's what we're going to come to now. Um, Olivia, higher bond yields have led to a resurgence in talk, not just from David, uh, around the 60-40 portfolio and more generally about the potential restoration of the inverse correlation between bonds and equities. But given all of that, how do you think about fixed income exposure right now, both in terms of the weighting in portfolios, but also the allocation within a fixed income book. Mm. I mean, I think it's it's something that investors really felt a lot of pain through last year. And the conversations I've had with financial advisors is around your low risk clients who had a lot of bond exposure because that's, mm-hmm. you know, they've typically provided you with that diversification um, and they've provided that lower risk exposure. And then all of a sudden you see this massive amount of volatility. And I think it's worth just remembering how how bonds work in the sense that when yields go up, bond prices go down. And so then you're going to feel that pain of bonds going down. And it by no means makes the conversation any easier, but volatility is not just one standard deviation. Uh, You know, there are other things that can actually happen across that that normal distribution of, of returns. And like I said, that doesn't provide peace of mind necessarily, but it does provide context as to what we saw happening last year. And so you've got bond prices going down, and then we kind of forget about the yield side, that you're actually now picking up an income from holding bonds. And so going forward, it's going to be quite interesting because you'll you'll now get bonds issued at higher yields. You'll be able to generate that yield return in the portfolios. And a recessionary-type environment will actually be quite supportive for, for bonds from a pricing perspective. And so I think we're going to see that dual benefits come back for bonds, where they've got both that diversifying characteristic, you know, they're def- they're more defensive, they're going to provide you with protection if equity markets are down, which is, again, something you would expect in a recessionary-type environment. But then you're also going to get the yield pickup. And I think that that's something that's, like I said, it's worth remembering because it's an easy one to forget because you don't necessarily see the yield. You see the figure saying, you know, we've mm-hmm. got this bond and it's yielding 4%, for example. But that's actually money that's being reinvested into that exposure when you're thinking about a multi-asset portfolio. So you don't always, it doesn't feel as obvious sometimes that you're getting that return. I think, you know, there's been a lot of conversation around, you know, is the 60-40 portfolio dead? And I don't think that can ever really be true. You know, markets move in cycles and 
there's going to be times when it's potentially less favorable and there's going to be times when it's more favorable. It depends on the type of investments that that clients actually have and the purpose of those investments. If I bring it even back to the funds that we were speaking about, where you expect a specific mandate of a fund, you expect them to behave in that particular way. For portfolios as well, if it's a long-term portfolio, you're going to want to weather these storms as we see them go through, right? And I think that that's, that's the important part is sticking to an investment strategy. If you've if you've determined that it is, it is an appropriate investment strategy from a risk and reward perspective. And I think we'll see bonds contribute to that 60-40 portfolio in a different way. Thank you. Um, David, around fixed income, I mean, yields on even things like investment grade got to a, mm. got to a level where, um, where even someone like me could figure out that they might be a good idea because they're yielding sort of <laughs> 6% and, you know, e- equities weren't necessarily yielding you 6% if you wanted something good. But um, what have your your, your readers been, been thinking about in, in that? Has there been a, a march? You, you mentioned many of them struggled around the, the mini budget and the guilt sell-off, but has there been a march back towards bonds? Um, it's It seems there is kind of, I think, re- renewed interest, although particularly the kind of, the, the people we write for are very much kind of stock pickers and mm-hmm. bonds are kind of like a, uh, you know, a, a, a different a different world, really. Sure. Um, quite alien. But, um, but yeah, as you say, I suppose it's it's interesting that um, uh, yields have gone so high that they should draw people back in. Um, although I suppose what's interesting is just how much risk you take within that and also how you're kind of positioned. Because, you know, Olivia mentioned the the recession risk but then that for me that always kind of creates an interesting dividing line over you know i suppose we've seen allocators in the database have been some of them are actually quite like some of the kind of riskier uh, stuff like your your high yields it's offering sure. some very high yields whereas <laughs> you know some people are much more just take the kind of easy ride with government bonds and i suppose the recession risk and default risk and all that kind of stuff i suppose makes a big difference on whether it's wise to be holding government bonds or actually to be going more into sort of credit that kind of thing mm. sure um Olivia, there does seem to be that battle as david referenced um in markets between those who are keenest to add protection against inflation staying higher for longer and those whose focus is perhaps protection from recession mm. and you know, maybe there's been a shift in certain last year. The inflation thing was the only game in town. And we came into to this year and the, the recession thing and, and increased allocation to fixed income has become more prominent. But in terms of your positioning, I know you're not going to, you know, just try to be protected against one of those things. Mm-hmm. But how do you try to square the, the mm-hmm. circle of higher inflation is a risk and recession is a risk? Mm. I mean, in our fixed income exposure, naturally we'll have have government debt in there. Um, I'll make two points really. The first one on, on government debt is the guild crisis was was a really interesting one. And we actually, when we looked at our performance relative to peers, we did quite well out of that. And the reason was we'd actually sold out of a, a standalone guilt holding within the portfolio. And we'd gone to a more of a global government bonds uh, view. And that's provided us with quite a bit of protection because then we didn't have such a big chunk allocated to gilts. So there would have still been gilts obviously within the the global exposure, but we didn't feel as much pain almost as as some of our peers because they had a much bigger exposure actually to to gilts. So I think even within the government bonds space, you know, you can diversify across and making sure that you're you're weighted appropriately with where that um 
you know, where that country really contributes at a global level. So we really benefited from from that type of exposure. But then my second point around around corporate debt, the high yields do look attractive, but you've really got to balance that with, with the economic uh, environment that we're in and the risk of default and what that might actually do to portfolios. So similar to my point on diversification, we allocate within the corporate bond space to dynamic bond managers and they have the ability to move more freely within a fund because we allocate to two third-party funds. Uh, we're able to then select those dynamic bond managers who who can kind of play within that high-yield space, but again, at an appropriate level of risk. So you can benefit from some of that high-yield, but then you've still got that protection of being more weighted towards your investment-grade, high-quality type of, type of credits. And I think that that's, again, it's about the layers of diversification that you actually see even within asset classes. Thank you. And David, what are your, what are your thoughts uh, there, the, the great debate between recession and, and inflation um, protection? Mm, yeah, it's, um, I, think, I think, yeah, it does make sense just to have, uh, again, very boring answer, but the kind of the diversification and um, feet in both camps. Um, but I suppose, it, yeah, uh, Olivia, your answer was reminding me of, um, I suppose, another interesting split we've seen with uh, allocators, haven't we? Where some, interestingly, last year we actually saw a shift of um, more allocators were sort of like turning their back on the um, dynamic and strategic bond funds, and they basically wanted to go, uh, I suppose, much more direct and pick, say, a you know a, a high yield bond fund or something like that. So, I, I think the issue was around um, a lot of the funds in the strap bond yeah. sector were, were very um, were very sh- uh, long duration. And that was obviously the wrong place to be in 2022 mm. when mm. it really soured some of the allocators we covered towards strap bond funds. And they kind of thought, well, if I'm going to get it wrong, at least I'll, you know, I'll get it wrong on duration by buying something like a, mm. a high yield fund rather than outsourcing the duration risk, which is what a strap bond fund kind of is. And they were outsourcing the duration risk to strap bond managers. And then that wasn't that wasn't coming home. So um, I think I think that is that is um, something that happened last year. But. You know, um, who knows what will happen this year? Maybe the strap bond guys are all the right side of the argument this year, and there'll be a, mm. a flow of of capital back 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 into them. Well, I think again, it's the it's the manager that you select, and mm-hmm. what is the mandate that that manager has, mm-hmm. and then are they going to stay true to that mandate? Um, and so, you know, we still held dynamic dynamic bond managers through last year, but they had a specific mandate. And so again, that provided us with with some of that protection. It's a funny one to say, you know, you provided protection in portfolios when everything was negative, right? I was, sure. I'm not saying things <laughs> yeah. were positive necessarily, but mm-hmm. it was less negative than others. <laughs> okay. And and really in the market, that's, that's what you want to achieve as much as possible. Something that we did to kind of help with the portfolios and you alluded to it earlier David is around alternatives and so we also have an allocation to alternatives within our within our portfolios and again defined mandates we want it to be an allocation to alternatives that has a low correlation to both equities and bonds and has both risk diversifying characteristics and return enhancing characteristics and then again to my point on you know taking bets where you think you're going to generate alpha out of it it's deciding to have some return enhancers but to not go overboard in that space at the moment because again we want to have more of a defensive positioning so that we've got more risk risk diversifiers to again help um, soften some of the blows that that we're seeing and I think we're still going to see quite a bit of volatility this year I don't think it's I don't think it's gone the market is still incredibly focused on the short term and 
almost joked about it last year that we moved from central bank meeting to central bank meeting. <laughs> but here we are, <laughs> waiting for the next one this week. <laughs> what will the BOE do? So, you know, it, it's still a very short-term focus. And I don't think that that, that helps market volatility. Thank you very much for that, Olivia, and thank you, David, for your contributions. But I'm afraid that is all we have time for this week. So thank you for, to Olivia Geldenhaus and David Baxter um, for joining me. And thank you all for listening. Do remember to tune in to the next edition of the Asset Allocator podcast. Thank you. <laughs>